0: You can open your Bibles up to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. The series is called Fruit to Root. The idea uh, is spiritual maturity. The question is, what does it mean to grow spiritually mature? How does God grow us? What does he use? We're finding out spiritual maturity is like growing fruit. It's slow. uh, It takes time. And there's a bunch of different virtues. God's growing in you all at once. And so we've gone through love, joy, peace, patience. We've gone through all of them and we've made our way all the way up to self-control. We're gonna spend three weeks on self-control. Do you know why? Because we really need to work on it, am I right? Uh, self-control is very important. So this is self-control week one. The Bible talks about the importance of self-control in many ways. One of the ways is by giving us a comparison. It says in Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I'll say it again. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In the ancient world, a city had walls uh, because the defense system was primitive. Uh, The army had to travel by animal to get to you if you were under attack, you know, and uh, it took a little while, okay? There was no air force. So your city broken into and left without walls was the worst possible thing that could happen. Total ruin and devastation. Check out some pictures of ancient cities that have crumbled. You see just the decay, you see the abandonment of what happens when walls tumble down, when the city can no longer be defended, it's abandoned, here's another picture, and uh, that's you, that's you, that's me, if we don't develop self-control. Lacking self-control leads to the total destruction of your life, your marriage, your family, your church. That's how important it is that we learn this virtue called self-control. There are many different forms of self-control, many different places where we can express self-control. So today, we're going to focus on the big three. The big three areas where we must learn self-control or our lives will suffer for it. Um, Then, uh, we'll spend another week where we talk about uh, topics that are really relevant today. Uh, we'll talk about things such as screens and food and how to manage the desires of our heart, right? Uh, so uh, there's going to be a very, very practical message. And, um, and so uh, we're dividing it up across three weeks. In Colossians chapter 3, what we'll find is uh, the big three that we need to learn to manage. Um, are you there? Check over at your neighbor and make sure they're looking at a Bible. Are they looking at a Bible? If not, share yours, because I want to make sure that we show high regard for God's Word this morning. But here we are in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing um, to the church here, and he's challenging them to grow on to maturity, and he's doing it by talking about Christ and how he transforms us. So here we are, chapter 3, verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly In you, point to where the earthly things are that we're supposed to put to death. Go point to them. Right. It actually says in you. So you could point to someone else if you want to be really clear and literal to the Bible. In you. (laughs) But really, it's it's referring to our own hearts. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The big three are found here. uh, And the first one is this. We have to learn to control our lusts. Learn to control your lust. This is um, referring to sexual temptation in particular. We were made sexual beings and God expects us to exercise tremendous restraint with our sexuality. Uh, we can't allow lust to control us, or our city walls will be torn down. We must learn to control lust. Uh, the Apostle Paul elsewhere says, I you know, beat my body and make it my slave right it does what I tell it to do I don't do what it tells me to do and in this area if we don't develop self-control we will be dragged over a cliff some people get squeamish when sex comes up in church right as if like this isn't the place to talk about it right as if like God isn't really interested uh, or informed that this world is filled with you know a lot of sexual behavior and desires like God looked down one day and he's like where did all these people come from I made two what have you been doing? All right. Uh, God designed us to be sexual beings, and so uh, he gave us a manual to learn how to govern this area of our life. When we stay on the safe trail of God's word, he leads us to lasting joy. But the world will lie to you and say you have to break off of God's safe trail, and you have to do you know, do it this way or that way, and guess what happens? Uh, pain, misery, and ruin. Uh, so... We have to learn to control our lust. And we have to realize that the um, control comes from God's manual. The Bible is filled with people who got this area wrong. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, displayed um, what one person called the untamed passions of a gifted man. I like that phrase, the untamed passions. Solomon, while his mind was brilliant, could not get a hold of his, uh, this area of his life. He would not restrain himself. The Bible said he took 700 wives. 700 wives. How much did he spend on weddings? Like, where do the creative ideas come from after 10 weddings? 700 wives? And then because that wasn't enough, he took an additional 300 concubines which is like servants with sexual benefits, a thousand women at his disposal. Do you think he was happy? Do you think he was happy after he had a thousand women to choose from? No, he was not. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. Turns out, the overindulgence of his pleasure, and this is a lesson for all of us, the overindulgence of his pleasure empties it. It doesn't fill it. When you show, when I show no restraint in an area of pleasure, guess what happens? Less happy. Less happy. We know this. With food, what happens when you overeat? I'm really glad I ate that third Italian beef sandwich from Portillo's because three is better than one as you're vomiting. The overindulgence of pleasure leads to the emptying of pleasure. See, there are rules that dictate, that govern the area of pleasure. You know that, right? And pain is a big problem in this world. And you might think, oh, if I went through a season of incredible pain, I I hope I don't turn on the Lord. You should be afraid of going through a season of, of incredible pleasure. When all of your desires are filled and you don't need God anymore, pleasure is a bigger problem than pain. You go through the world and you find people who have all of their dreams come true. And guess what? Suicidal. Don't know what to do. The end of your pleasure is a much more dangerous place to be than the end of your pain. And if you are desiring to fill your life with as much sexual pleasure as you possibly can, you don't get it. You don't get it. That it will end up controlling you and it will uh, burn your life to the ground. When it comes to This area, think of Samson, the strongest man in the Bible. This is what took him out. Couldn't control this area, women. King David, a man after God's own heart, what finally did him in? He was standing up on his rooftop when he should have been off to war and watching a woman bathe who wasn't his wife. Led him to take her and have this adulterous affair. And then she gets pregnant and then... then What's he going to do? Covers it up. Kills the woman's husband. Lies for a year. This is a man after God's own heart. If the wisest and the strongest and the godliest men in the Bible couldn't win this battle, guess what? You're fooling yourself if you think you're strong enough to manage this. The Bible doesn't tell us to fight sexual immorality. It tells us to what? Uh, Run like hell. Run like a lion is chasing you, okay? So imagine yourself in the Brookfield Zoo and the lion got out, right? And hasn't eaten all morning. And you see it. What do you do? Here, kitty, 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 look. These exhibits get better every year. I feel like I'm in the exhibit with the... And away you go. Uh, run. Learn to control your lust. The Bible teaches the only righteous way to fulfill your sexual desires is between one man and one woman in a marital relationship. Any fulfillment or enjoyment of sexual desire outside of God's prescribed way is sin and leads to incredible suffering in this world. Um, You can learn that the easy way or you can learn that the hard way, but it's true whether you believe it or like it or not. That's the way God designed it. When it comes to sexual enjoyment, um, it's meant to be attached to marriage. Sexual fulfillment is meant to be attached to marriage, like a power line is meant to be attached to a pole. And if you detach the power line from the pole, that's what happens when you detach sexual activity from marriage. Only bad things will happen. A lot of power, a lot of power, but it's no longer attached in a way that harnesses the power. And so it's, it's, it's power that is not harnessed, and it leads to uh, tremendous disaster in your life. I saw a video recently from Arlington Heights of a power line that fell down on a play set in somebody's backyard. Check it out. Here's a video. See the power line off to the right? It fell on the swing set. Holy cow! Firefighters are trying to figure out what to do. Look, it charged the fence. There, that might have The whole fence is electrified. Raise your hand if you would go swing on that swing set. (laughs) Raise your hand. Nobody? That's what I thought. Uh, When you decide to play with sex outside of marriage, you're on that swing set. You understand? Oh, you might be having a little fun. Oh, yeah. Whee! Guess what? That's coming. You will get fried because God's judgment will come on you. Um, sexual sin leads to disaster because sex was meant to be attached safely to marriage, just like the power line was meant to be attached to the pole. All pleasure is protected and enriched by restraint. We have to learn that. Our world will tell us the opposite. They will say all pleasure is enriched by lack of restraint. Get your rules off of me and then I'll have more fun and more freedom. That's not true. All pleasure is is protected and enriched by restraint. If you restrain your pleasure, especially your sexual pleasure, you will have more pleasure and less pain. If you fail to restrain this, you will have more pain and less pleasure. You have to, at the core of your being, you have to understand that when God sets up a boundary like this in your area, he is not subtracting pleasure from you, he is subtracting pain from you. See, if you believe God's holding you back from a world of pleasure that you could have without His rules, you don't get it. You're being deceived. God is holding you back from this much pleasure and a world of pain by setting up boundaries uh, in this one area. So, our sexual sin must die. Notice the Bible says it must die. It must die. This is homicide that has to happen in here between you and sexual temptation. There's no playing with it. There's no, you know, there's there's none of that. You're not playing with fire. My sexual sin must die. The words used here, if you look back in the Bible, says what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. That is a blanket term, an umbrella term that can include all forms of sexual sin. Um, And and just to clearly lay it out there, because I'm not assuming the world is teaching us anymore what is sexual sin. Uh, fornication, sex, sex before marriage, is sin. It's sin. It invites God's judgment. Um, adultery, meaning sex inside of marriage with someone you're not married to, is sin. Incest is sin. Sodomy, uh, sex between two same-sex people, is sin. That's all included in this term sexual immorality. Then it, it um, makes it even a little more uh, narrow here, focused. It says impurity That means uh, lustful living. So somebody might say, well, it's not like we're going all the way. Well, impurity is a sin, meaning you're allowing lust to stain a relationship, okay? Um, It's not the amount of sexual sin that gets you in trouble. It's the nature of sexual sin that's a problem with God. So any relationship stained or made dirty by sexual sin falls into this category of impurity, um, it uses the word passion. <clears throat> that means that even the strong, lustful desires of your heart could be sinful. Meaning you're at the gym and you you look at someone and check her out, and then you look again, and then there's fantasies that begin, and then there's there's strong desires that you are fanning into flame, and that's called evil desire. All right? All right. Like, well, I can't hell, I just see a pretty woman, I have to look. Okay. Chuck Swindoll once said it's the second look that kills, all right? You're looking again, and you're thinking again, and you're flaring up those desires within. That's called sin. Um, it says here, evil desire, passion and evil desire, <clears throat> which means the passion you're enjoying now becomes something you want. You want what is wrong, what's off limits, or someone that belongs to something, somebody else. What are the warning signs? Uh, that this area is not good in your life. Uh, Obviously, the big one is pornography. If you have not enjoyed an extended season of victory in this area, God is telling you again something you already know, that that's unacceptable. Uh, It's hurting him. It's hurting, if you have a a spouse, it's hurting that spouse right now uh, because it's probably being hid. And if you're not married, it's hurting your future spouse because you're establishing a terrible pattern. Porn, a blooming friendship with a member of the opposite sex who you don't belong with. Blooming friendship. Talking about things you shouldn't be talking about. Sharing things you shouldn't be sharing. A blooming friendship. And you're hiding it, you know, because you're not doing it out in the open. You're doing it through the back alleys of social media so other people can't see it. That, that You're doing that because it's wrong and you know it's wrong. A blooming friendship. Um, this area can be a problem if the fire is out at home. If you're married and the fire is out at home, uh, that's a problem. If you're covering your tracks with... Places you've been or people you've talked to, it's a problem. The Bible is filled with terrifying warnings about sexual sin, and we have to flee. Uh, we have to seek pure pleasure that only God can provide us through his way. Let me ask you this question. It's hard to gauge where, are you, where am I at? Where am I at with this? It can be hard to gauge. Let me give you three scenarios here. Are you fighting a winning battle with, with lust? Meaning, are you enjoying an extended season of victory? If so, keep your guard up. Help other people to keep you accountable. And bravo, you're showing others that it's possible that God wants you to learn self-control. But let me ask you this, are you fighting a losing battle? Are you defeated more than you're victorious? Has defeat become a way of life for you? Have you settled for less than a victorious life? That's a problem. And let me just tell you that you got to talk to your small group leader or pastor about that right away. You have to admit the truth that I'm fighting a losing battle with lust. If you don't admit the truth, you won't won't get better. And there are some people who aren't ready to fight this. And I'm not talking to you because you're going to continue to learn the hard way. And then one day you'll wake up. But to those of you who are ready and you want to fight a winning battle with this, I want you to know it's possible. But you have to be honest about your starting point. And then there are people who have lost this battle. Maybe that's you. You have lost this battle. You have done something, and maybe it's known or not, uh, that is Uh, life-altering. Life-altering. The fight, maybe it was there for a while, maybe you were losing for a while, but you have gone somewhere in this area of your life, and maybe you're sitting in the the rubble of ruin because you've done this. Uh, But I want you to know there is hope for you. There is hope for you if you have lost this battle, but you have to get help. You need to, if you're a man, you need to look a man of God square in the eye and say, I've ruined it. I've blown it. I've failed. And then then you can find help. It may require professional help uh, from somebody if if things have gotten so bad. But let me just tell you there is hope, but you have to be honest. And then you can learn to control your lust. I'm saying this because God wants to paint a better picture of the future for you. You. Winning this battle for an extended season of victory. That's his will for you. Number one, we have to learn to control our lust. That can be a whole sermon. But we're moving on to number two, because we've got the big three we're covering today. Number two, we have to learn to control our greed. Learn to control our greed. So sex, money. Reading on, it says here, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Then it says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So we have to develop a different relationship with money once we are in Christ. And it says here, covetousness is idolatry. Uh, It says on account of things like covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. Um, People will go to hell forever because of their relationship to money. If on judgment day... Um, the topic of money was, was the only thing that a person was judged on There would be enough to put us all away for eternity. Because our relationship to money shows us our relationship to God. And a covetousness heart is a sinful heart. So we have to learn to control greed. We can't allow greed to control us. We have to display tremendous restraint with money, with envy, with foolishness, The Bible is full of people who have paid dearly for their love of money. Uh, And while while we can lull ourselves into thinking that this isn't that big of a deal to God, we must remember our history. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to sell a piece of land and uh, to bring some of the profits to the church. What a happy day. New church need money, a lot of poor people. And here come wealthy Ananias and Sapphira with a chunk of change, right? Um, and Peter was warned in the spirit that they were lying. And so, so uh, Ananias comes forward and he says, is this the full amount you received for that property? Yes, but it wasn't. They wanted the glory of acting like they're giving the whole amount, but really what they did was they uh, sold it so that they could use some of it on themselves, give some of it to church, but get the glory as if they're giving all of it to church. It's deceitful. And God, making an example of them, put Ananias to death during the offering. And the ushers, who were not prepared for this, I guarantee you, had to come up with a burial plan which they did. I don't know if they grabbed the snow shovels or what. That's what we'd have to do. And, and out they went. And they buried him. And it took them a while because several hours later they come back in. They're all covered in dirt. Then the wife shows up and she walked forward and Peter said, Is this the full amount? Yes, that's the full amount. How? He said, how can you conspire together to lie to the Holy Spirit? She died right there. Two dead. During the, then the ushers had to go out and bury another person. How does God feel about our financial sin? Uh, Murderously angry. Murderously angry. Furious because we love a false God. If we don't understand how dangerous and fatal covetousness is for our souls, we'll continue to play with fire. We have to learn to control our greed. Uh, A basic evaluation you can do to find out how you're doing with money would be this Do you have a spending plan? It's called a budget. Uh, written down that you could show someone. Do you have a giving plan that you have figured out in advance that you could show someone? Do you have a savings plan? If if strike three, if you don't have a savings plan or a giving plan or a spending plan, I'm guessing you're in really rough shape, really rough shape. Um, the world will tell you to overindulge yourself in this area. If you want it, get it. Uh, you know, money will overpromise. And say, if you go for me, I can provide for you and protect you. I can secure you, and I can satisfy you. Just go with me, and I will take care of everything. And money makes promises only God can keep. Money lies. Money lies when you have it, and money lies when you don't have it. When you don't have it, money says, get me, and everything will be fine. When you have it, money says, if you lose me, you're going to be in rough shape. Money always lies to you, and money can't provide you with what it says it can There is a very worldly movie, I didn't see the movie several years ago called Wall Street that came out, but there's one famous clip that I have seen that just expresses the heart of the world toward money. So this is Gordon Gekko. Check it out. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. That's the gospel of the world. More money, more security. Our kids will end up better. We'll have a better home. We'll be able to leave something to our... More money equals more security. Um, Do you know if you lost everything tomorrow, Jesus would still be enough for you? Do you believe that? What if he demanded it of you? I think of Mike Kiyowski and Terry who left everything to go over to Romania now, one of our elders to serve there, just as they should be planning for retirement, the good years, and off he goes to a foreign land, learning a foreign language, um, and uh, he's an eye doctor, you know, doing pretty well financially. And God said, "Go. Would you? Would you? Could you? Learn to control your greed." Ecclesiastes five ten says, "He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income." This also is vanity. Uh, this was written by Solomon, a man who has more money than you could ever accumulate. If you factor in the difference in times and days, Solomon only had gold in his portfolio. And he says to us, it's never enough, ever. Never, ever, ever enough. We know that. We live in the richest nation in the history of humanity. And are we 100% happy? No, we're not. It's not enough. It's never enough. In Luke 16, 13, it says, you cannot serve God and money. Either God or money is sitting on the throne of your heart right now. It can't be both. And if you're following money, you're not following God. If you're trusting money, you're not trusting God. It's one or the other. Two rival gods fighting for control of the throne of your heart. You've given one of them the crown. And God wants to be that one. How do we test if we're doing well, good, bad, ugly with money? Well, there's some words used here that are important. It says, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness means replacing God with a false God, trusting money to bring us security and satisfaction, but only God can do this. Know that it's not a sin to have things or to have money. I can't tell you a penny threshold where as soon as, soon as your annual income rises above this, this amount, you have a sinful income. All right, I can't tell you that. Uh, and who are we to be judging the income of others? Let's get our African brothers and sisters to come over and tell all of us how, how well we're doing, right, at uh, living meager and, and content lifestyles. We can't judge other people's income and say, they, they shouldn't have that much money because then we, uh, we're susceptible to other people judging us. That's not how we find a righteous relationship to money, by figuring out how much I should have. It's not a sin to have things or money. It's a sin to love things and money, to be engrossed in them and to set our heart on them. When is it sin? That's a really good question. Do you have an answer to that? When is my money sin? How can I sin with money? Well, um, warning signs would be not budgeting. Uh, ignorance is not your friend. I don't, I don't even know where it goes. Uh, that's not your friend. Ignorance favors the flesh. You don't know where it goes because you don't care to know because then you can indulge your spending. So you don't have a budget. It's a big problem. Your debt is growing. It's a big problem. You're just trusting JP Morgan to meet your needs and not God. Huge deal. If you have your uh, bank account tied to your credit card, they call it like overdraft protection. It's not protection. They're robbing you. (laughs) They should call it overdraft robbing. (laughs) They want you to tether your bank account to the credit card so that you can spend more than you should and not feel it, right? Never do that. I strongly urge you not to do that. Um, uh, We've seen a lot of trouble come from that. But when the money runs out, the spending should stop, right? That's a really good discipline even before that. So we're, we're not budgeting. We're growing in debt. If there's a lot of fighting about money in your household, that's a danger sign. Of course, if you are breaking laws or branding... Bending rules or doing anything sneaky or shady or questionable. That's all a sign that money has a sinful grip over your heart. And most importantly, you're not tithing. You're not tithing. Um, If you're not um, giving to the Lord financially, um, your worship is unacceptable to Him. Because from Eden, God has expected people to come into His presence and to bring an offering. It just flat out says in the Bible, come into His presence, bring an offering. And I would just challenge you, if you're not giving to your Sure, I'm not saying this because we need money. We're doing great financially. I'm saying this because if you don't give to the Lord, you'll hurt yourself, you'll hurt your family, and you'll hurt your church. And however, there's always a reason people reason their way out of giving. Um, And I would just challenge you to really dismantle that rationality, right? Whatever that is, God wants you to give first to Him, first. Then you're partnering with Him financially, and He can bless this area of your life. But if you're not giving to the Lord financially, You are going it alone. You are going it alone. And one big way to show others that money is your God is you won't bring it to your true God, right? You won't bring it to your true God because you're afraid he'll take it away. Uh, So humble yourself and um, ask yourself, are you fighting a winning battle with money? Do you have a a savings plan, a spending plan, and a giving plan? That to me is you're fighting a winning battle with money. Uh, Are you fighting a losing battle with money? are you mostly defeated? Are, has it been chronically bad? Uh, are things not getting better? Are you, in a, are you in a fog of ignorance and despair because you haven't won in this area? Uh, or uh, is it even worse than that? And have you lost the battle? Or, I, mean, have you lo- I mean, are you like five years behind on your taxes? I mean, things being for. have you lost the battle and you need professional help? Let me just say, wherever you are, God will help transform this area, but you have to tell the truth. You've got to get with somebody and look across the table and tell them the truth. Hey, we need help in this area. We've helped a lot of people in this area through our Financial Peace University. We've helped to strengthen this area. Sometimes people have just been foolish. Sometimes life just pulled the rug out from under them, and, and you know they thought things were going well, and bam, they lose their job or they get disabled. But whatever your case is, don't settle for anything less than God growing a sense of self-control in you where greedy and foolish desires die. Number one, learn to control your lust. Number two, we have to learn to control our greed. The big three. The third one would be power and comes in the form of anger here. Number three, learn to control your anger. If if any one of these areas has completely come undone, you are a city without walls. Uh, You are putting yourself in jeopardy. If money or sex or power, meaning through your anger, is not controlled, your life is going to be filled with damage. The Bible goes on to say in verse uh, 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Anger can be sinful or righteous. Sinful anger is quick unrestrained, violent, or misdirected. How do I know if my anger is sinful? It's quick, unrestrained, violent, or misdirected. Righteous anger is godly, measured, controlled, and constructive. We can't allow anger or lust or greed to control us, to be the consuming center in our heart. We must learn to control it. It's only through the presence of Christ in our hearts that we can. We have to display tremendous restraint with the power that we want over others. This shows up in conflict. This shows up with our words. We must learn to control our ego, to control our temper. There are many people in the Bible who struggled to control their power or their ego or their temper. Uh, It began with Cain. Cain killed Abel because he couldn't control his anger. King Saul hurled spears at David because he couldn't control his anger. Um, Who could forget when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were faced with the fiery furnace because Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down and worship him. He couldn't control his anger. He He couldn't control his anger. Who could forget the Apostle Paul who went on a murderous rampage, killed Christians. But God changed his heart. God can change your heart too. But you have to learn to control your anger. Learning to control our anger and temper, it happens day in and day out. We have many choices and we can decide just how angry we're going to get. I read a story recently that said this. Virginia man brings five wheelbarrows full of pennies to DMV. Check it out. Here's a picture of an angry Virginia man who brings five wheelbarrows full of pennies to the DMV. It says, Capping off a drawn-out feud with the DMV, Nick Stafford brought 300,000 pennies to the Lebanon, Virginia location to pay the sales tax on two cars. Uh, He said, If they were going to inconvenience me, I was going to inconvenience them. Stafford stuck around to make sure the pennies were pinched. Uh, It took them... Uh, until 1 a.m. the next day to count all of the money. This spirit of like, I'm going to get even, I'm going to make you pay, shows up in many ways throughout our day. But if we're going to learn to control our anger, we have to make a hundred choices a day that display self-control. The word wrath here in the Bible is a loud word. Uh, Anger leads to wrath wrath involves shouting or berating others if you're loud if you're angry if you're berating other people that's a problem okay it's a problem i'm just a loud person well the bible says that we all should be slow to anger so if you're a person god wants you to be slow to anger volume can be an issue the word malice here Uh, is the desire to injure others with your words. And you see the downward spiral. I'm angry, which is a feeling when I'm around someone. Uh, Then then I feel this sense of wrath, which is a loud word, right? I'm getting loud about them. And then malice is you actually desire to injure them by what you say or even physically by how you relate to them. You want to hurt them. And that's the downward spiral that anger will take you on. This is a picture of a volcano. Check it out. Uh, And... Um, your volcanic heart has to, the Bible uses the word, die. It has to die. You, you have to take your volcanic heart um, to the curb and put two bullets in it. it ha- that's how different you have to become. It has to die. Okay, You can't put it away for a little while and then take it out when you really need it. it has to, there has to be a funeral for your temper, there are righteous outlets for your anger. Prayer is a big one. Venting to God. A friend who you can trust. Warning signs that anger is out of control would be you're habitually shouting. You're habitually shouting at work, at home, wherever. Uh, warning sign, you express your anger violently towards others or objects. Um, warning signs would be you're constantly thinking about violent scenarios or actions. Proverbs 16:32 says, "Better a patient man than a warrior, one who controls his temper than one who takes a city." One of the things that will change your heart when it comes to anger is admitting that um, failing to control your temper makes you a weak man and not a strong man." Agreeing with that can be revolutionary. Uh, failing to control your temper makes you a weak woman, not a strong woman. Gives you less control over your children, not more. Uh, gives you less control over your husband, not more. Choosing to trust anger to give you more control over your life always backfires. But you have to agree with that before you're going to change because you think anger is like a PED, like a performance enhancing drug. Well, I'll just trust my anger to get things squared away at work and then I'll calm down. Uh, no, that's not the way it works. Uh, there are consequences. So if the warning signs are challenging you, maybe this is an area God wants to teach you self-control in. Ask yourself this, are you fighting a winning battle with anger? Do you have your anger under control most of the time? And when you blow your top, do you apologize and make things right? Or would you say you're fighting a losing battle with anger? You lose the battle most of the time. Chronic defeat almost always. You hardly ever win. Or would you say you have just flat out lost the battle? You have done things and said things that have altered your life. You've lost jobs. Uh, You have been, you know, uh, you've committed crimes. You you know, you have lost relationships. I mean, would you say you have lost the battle with anger? There's hope for you. Wherever you are with this area of your life, there is hope that God can transform your heart. But you have to start by being honest. You've got to look across the table at someone and say, I'm fighting a losing battle with anger and I want help. You have to have the humility to say, I've lost the battle with anger and it has cost me dearly. Otherwise, nothing will change. Somebody once said this to me that was really simple and profound and I never forgot it. He said this. He said, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I was like, duh. But I was like, yeah. It's so true. If I just think that I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and a new heart is going to leap out, right? That's not the way it works. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And let me just ask you, do you want to develop self-control with your lust? Do you want that? If you do, you have to tell someone you want it. Do you want to learn to control greed and and, and to help money have much less control over your anxieties? If you want that, you need to tell somebody where you're at. Do you want to learn self-control over your anger? Are you ready to admit that in these three huge areas that you're not strong enough to win these battles. Because if you are, God can transform you. Uh, There's no such thing as it's gotten too bad. God will give you a new heart. You can have hope, but you have to be honest and turn to him, and only then can he make you stronger than ever before. I'd love to give you a chance right now as we bow in prayer to talk to God, maybe about the one area that you feel he's really challenging you the most. But let's all bow our hearts Let's close our eyes and let's have a time right now where you can talk to God about these challenging areas. Father, right now we feel convicted, Lord, because we're not where we should be. And we feel like we're fighting battles that are too hard for us. Just when we feel we've got them under control and another area breaks loose, humbly we come into your presence, Father, And we admit that we are not yet who you intended us to be. Lord, this struggle is common to all. Remind us that we're not the only ones fighting these fights. But I just pray right now that that you, O Lord, would listen as men and women in this room make a, a heartfelt appeal to you for greater strength in an area of their life as they pray right now.